Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, the whole text is there in the bulletin. You can just follow there. That's the one I'm going to be looking at myself. I want to say again that we're glad you're here, and welcome to Downtown Prez if you're visiting. And um, now or in the future, if there's anything we can do for you, please let us know or answer a question. This morning, in some ways, is going to be like and unlike last week. It's going to be like last week in the sense that these, uh, these first few weeks that I've gotten back in the saddle after being away for sabbatical, I'm trying to lead us into looking at things that are just core beliefs, just foundational bedrock beliefs, commitments of our church and really just of the Christian faith. The first week we looked at Scripture, that Christ is the key to unlock what Scripture is really about. Last week we looked at justification by faith, that is a huge term in the Bible, and that's not just a Presbyterian word or a theological word, that's a Bible word, and um, if you want to know more about that, listen online to, to last week. But this morning we're looking at sanctification, and similar to last week, that word is not really in the text, but the text is all about it. What's not like last week is that we spent the whole sermon last week largely on one verse, We've got 17 verses this morning, so if I go at the same pace, that's about nine hours of a sermon, so we won't do that. This is going to be admittedly way more broad brush, but this is a great passage for thinking about what we mean by sanctification. And here's what I want you to, to have in mind as we read the passage. The gospel, as we love to talk about, is good news. It's good news for bad people, actual sinners who don't have it together. It's good news for them. Last week, justification is just screaming, there's good news for people who are unclean. You can be utterly cleansed and accepted and pardoned and brought in. That's justification. This morning, the good news is saying this, you and I can experience real change. Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. This is by the Apostle Paul. It's from the New Testament. This is written to, as I mentioned earlier, a Gentile church. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these two, in these you two once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all. And in all, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, 
bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, uh, one phrase from your Holy Scriptures is more than we could unpack in a lifetime, but when we look at 17 verses so full, so full of the truth of your Word, so full of very direct applications, we all the more feel that we need your help. Uh, Help me not to give a talk and help us not to endure a talk. What we pray is that you, by the whole of your Word, will speak into our lives and give us ears to hear. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. A friend of mine sent me a poem um, a week or two ago. And I'm going to read it to you. It's, It's short. This will take less than a minute. And the title of the poem is No Surprise. It was no surprise to be sure that we saw the damage now strewn all over town. For years we saw it coming, though we hoped we were wrong, and sometimes thought things might actually work out, but that was just a dream. You do what you can, and sometimes you just can't do any more, and then the wheels just fall off. One time my dad told me that things will get better. Well, they didn't. Things got worse. She cried and he yelled, the scent of vodka in his voice, both filling the room and then silence, just silence. There were no more Christmas cards and no more photographs at the beach with everyone in their matching white shirts and blue jeans. There are instead moving vans and therapists and Kleenex boxes. The kids spend time with friends and wonder what happened and was it their fault and why is mama so sad? But that was years ago and now their wives are sad and their breath has the scent of vodka and we hope things will get better but deep down we know the way it will end with the sound of crying and the familiar scent of vodka and silence. We're glad to offer this ministry of encouragement to the city of Greenville and um, to lift you up in worship. But I share that, the the subject line of that email was a little dark. Um, But I share that with you because that, that poem gets at what, from a biblical framework, we would call generational sin. Now, we could, if, if we possess any self-awareness, we could uh, wax eloquent about ways that we need to change. And the people that know us and, and live with us could really wax eloquent about the ways that we need to change. But that one puts its finger on a particular, 
And that's generational sins. And, and the thing that so just, uh, just, just knocks the wind out of you about this is that I've seen this in my own life and I've seen it in the lives of those around me and I've seen it pastorally, is that you tend to become what you hate. That if you grew up and uh, what anger looked like was exploding in your home and you thought as a little kid, one of these days when I'm a grown-up, I'm not going to be that way, you probably are an exploder. Or if you, and that's not to throw mom and dad under the bus. That's just to say that's how life works. Or if you grew up in a home where, you know, if I do 99 things right, but I make this one mistake, then that's what is just pounced on, and that's what's put under the light, and that's the feel of the next 24 hours is the one mistake I made. And growing up with that, you thought, I'm not going to be that way when I grow up, and now you're that way. Now, let's go back to what is the gospel. The gospel is good news. And if I stood up and said, you know, the Bible gives us the changes that we need to make, and that's all I gave us, would that be good news? That would be despair. If that's all I gave us, then we're supposed to save ourselves. And guess what we do when we try to save ourselves? We fail. But what the Scriptures do is they say, look, God is so good. He's so unbelievably good that not only is there good news of cleansing you and redeeming you, I mean from head to toe redeeming you and bringing you in, cleansed, pardoned, adopted, everything, but God Himself will change you. He will change you. He will go into the heart of hearts where we can't even change ourselves. That is good news. How does that kind of change come about? Uh, I want to look at three things. And I'm framing this in terms of future change, because really, that's how change has to be. It's, you know, it's not, it hasn't yet happened. We want it to happen for the rest of our lives. So three things about future change. First off, future change requires past change and is built upon past change. The second thing, future change means killing And the third thing, future change means dressing. All right, so it requires past change. It means killing. It means dressing. And the first thing, future change requires past change. There's something that the Apostle Paul likes to do, and it's frustrating to us. And what I want us to do is to open our hearts to it, that this is what will bring real change, and it's this. When we think about future change, we kind of look up at whoever or the mirror or or, or the Bible and say, what do you want me to do? And what Paul loves to do is to say, we're not going to start off talking about what to do. We're going to start off with, who are you? And look what he does here. Verse 1. Speaking to a church. Okay, so he's not just writing to a general population. He's writing to professing Christians. And he says this. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. If you've already been raised with Christ, already, do these things. Verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. He does it again. Look down in verse 9, second part of verse 9. Seeing that you have already put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. 
you already have. Now, now think about what he just said. You are, here's what you, professing Christian, what you already are. You already are someone whose old self died. And that's big with Paul. You're not a forgiven old you. The old you was killed with Christ. It's a mystery. How can that be? The old you was killed with Him. The new you is now you. The new you was raised and lives. And you already have, in some definitive way, put off the old man and put on the new. So He says, you already are that. And then listen to what He says, you already have. Look at this, verses uh, 12 and 13. He's about to make a just pile of applications. He's about to tell you what to do, but look at what he says. Put on them, how? As God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Then look at verse 13. He says, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. You already are a new creature in Christ, and you already have what? You already have that He chose you. You know, as you can tell, I'm small in stature. And it was even more so growing up. I was young for my grade, so it was kind of like a double whammy. And, you know, the awful feeling of not being chosen early on a team is crummy. And the beautiful thing about the Scriptures is it says, He chose you. He chose you. If you're in Christ, you already have that. And He says, and you're already holy. And this came up last week. Paul, if you tell them they're already holy, they're not going to want to be holy. Paul would say, it is the opposite. If you don't tell God's people that they're already holy, they won't want to be holy. You're chosen. You're holy. You're already loved. You're beloved. And you're already forgiven. You already have that. Now, here's what this makes me think of. I'm I'm guessing most of you saw the the Pixar movie, The Incredibles. Have most of you seen The Incredibles? All right, good. Um, the Incredibles is about a group of superheroes, and they've been forced by the government to just kind of like not live as superheroes and kind of just uh, diffuse into the population. The main characters are a married couple, Mr. Incredible, and his wife, Elastigirl, who now have just kind of normal, normal names. And there's another character. It's this little lady named Edna Mode. And Edna is this just sort of super avant-garde designer of superhero costumes. You know, she kind of says like, darling, you know, and just has this crazy modern house and everything. But she's very intense, very bigger than life. She has these giant glasses. She's based on a lady named Edith Head that wore glasses like that. Anyway, not the point of my sermon. Mr. Incredible, his wife, Elastigirl. Mr. Incredible has been living as a superhero when he's not supposed to be, and he's been hiding it from his wife. His wife realizes he's keeping some secrets from her And she thinks he's having an affair. She thinks there's another woman. And she finds out about it when she's over at Edna Mode's house. And she breaks down crying and says, And now I'm losing him. What will I do? And I wish I I could impersonate Edna Mode. The director of the movie is the one who does her voice. But those eyes and the big glasses just squint and look up at Elastigirl and, and she says... What are you talking about? And she jumps up on the island of the kitchen where they're sitting and she grabs a rolled up newspaper and she says, 
You are Elastigirl. Put yourself together. (laughs) And hits her with the newspaper. She says, what am I supposed to do? What kind of question is that? You will show him that you remember that he is Mr. Incredible and you will remind him who you are. Now, what did she just say? That's interesting because Elastigirl, Mrs. Parr, she just said, what do I do? And Edna said, you are Elastigirl. That's who you are. Then she says, you know where he is? Confront the problem. Find him. Fight. Win. And when you get back, call me. I love our visits. You know, she says at the end. That is like the Apostle Paul. That is like Colossians 3, is that we're we're frustrated because we're saying, tell me what to do to change. And he says, who are you in Christ? Because if you don't do that, then how is Christianity different than any other religion where there's do's and don'ts? You don't have to have the supernatural for that. What you have to have the supernatural for is if the old you was crucified. And there's a new you who, by the power of God, can actually change. And, get this, that when you make those changes, you're tapping into the real you, and that's the mystery. All right, so what does he go on to say? Future change means killing. That's a, this is a strong verb. It's not the only time that Paul uses it. Christians sometimes use the word mortify or mortification, putting sin to death. How does he say to do it? Now, again, this is broad brush. He doesn't start with the actions. He starts with the impulses of the heart that lead to actions. Look at verse 5. What does he say? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Now, he doesn't mean earthy. God made the earth. God made matter. God made our bodies. But he means things that are worldly, sinful. What is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. He's really not so much talking about the actions yet as the bent of the heart. That's where the killing has to start. Not at the level of actions, but in the impulses. Oh, that we had more time to to unpack that. But think about this. A close friend of mine, his older brother, recently... um, or a year, year or two ago, went to rehab for severe alcoholism and has, has really experienced a pr- some profound change. And the physical changes have really hooked up with spiritually things that were uh, asleep at the wheel and have really come alive. And so this older brother, as he's gone to these group meetings almost every day, has shared with my friend about what it's like. And he said that there's a man that goes to one of the meetings. I can't remember which day, but let's say every Friday. And get this. This man is an older man. He's been sober for 41 years. And it, now, he has not been drunk in 41 years. And he goes to the meetings every week, probably multiple times, but always that one particular one, because he feels at any given moment he is 15 minutes away from just getting hammered. He hasn't in a stretch longer than some lifetimes in the room. But that, and I have no idea where he's coming from spiritually, but that is what we call self-awareness, right? That the impulses 
are what manifest themselves in the actions. Now, now what does Paul say about the actions? He says, the ones that are earthly, the ones that have nothing to do with the new man, but they hearken back to the old, take them off. It's the image of clothing. I mean, you might say that behaviors, actions are the clothing of the heart. Take off the clothes that do not fit you and that God does not like. And what are they? Here's the list. Verse 8, now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. What's the common thread in those actions? They assume the presence of other people. Usually if you have anger and malice, it's not at yourself. I mean, you can do that, but it's usually at other people. Or uh, if, we, if we are speaking in an obscene way, it's to impress someone or make someone laugh or it's to put somebody in their place or chew somebody out. Or if we're lying, it's to and about other people. It assumes the presence of others. And he says, you must, if you're in Christ, you must understand that those actions may feel incredibly natu- <clears throat> natural. That's not the real you. Take those clothes off. This is as real as if you stay around here and you get in a community group and sometime this fall, someone speaks to you the wrong way. Or uh, someone didn't get back to you about something that they were supposed to bring and now it's kind of messed everything up. Or, Or you have a child and the child was kind of acting out a little bit at someone's house and somebody said something the wrong way to my child. And here's how real Paul's application is. If, if we think that the way to handle that is that when I then see that person again in Sunday worship and I smile at them, that I've dealt with it, that we're kidding ourselves. That if I'm smiling at this person and I'm not blowing up, them, up at them, but I contain a heart of malice, I'm not changing. That we've got... It got quiet. <laughs> this is all of it. We've got to put this off. That sexual immorality, bending the truth, telling something where I I come out shining and the mistakes I made are covered up by me concealing the truth, that's not who I am. Then what are we to do? And this is great. The New Testament ethic doesn't just say, don't do that. It says, don't do that, but rather, do that. It's not just don't do that and then like sit in a chair and don't cuss. It says, don't do that, but rather, do the thing that's real and that is life and that's the real you. Now, what what does that look like in here? Verse 12, put on then, like here's the clothing of the heart as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, you're already that, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. All right, if you feel like you're drinking out of a fire hose... We are. He's, he's throwing a ton at us. Think about it this way. Every Christian, y'all, every Christian 
for the rest of his or her life is going to have moments where if you put on the clothes of the new man, you will feel like you're putting on plaid spandex or something just completely foreign to your experience. You'll feel like, I'm not a plaid spandex guy. I don't, this is not the right clothes for me. And what that means is I, I'm not used to wearing these clothes. And what Paul is saying is if either your own heart or Satan himself has gotten you to believe that, well, you know what? I don't naturally act this way and I want to be an authentic person. And if I make this change, then I'm not being who I really am and I'm being inauthentic and I'm going to be an authentic person. So I'm not going to do that action and I'll just, I guess, confess. Paul says, yeah, we have to confess, but put off what's not you and put on what really is you and really fits. And it's not spandex. It is a well-tailored suit for the real you. And what that means is this. You might have grown up in a family that is our grudge people. And I love grudges. And I can hold one like a puppy and dote on it and hold it near my heart. And if you're naturally a grudge person, then to, not, okay, not only to forgive someone, it will feel weird to you, but then if, the, the, if there's someone else in your life that really knows you and they know you're a grudge person, and if they know you've been hurt and they know you're about to you know, launch into grudge talk, and they, whatever that is, and you, they, they hear you say, look, I need to forgive that person. And I, I'll tell you right now, I'm no better than that person. And they don't need mercy any more than me. And I've, I've got to pray about my own anger. Because it's wrong. I mean, that may be an out-of-body experience for you and for the person who really knows you. And Paul says, wade in. The water is fine. And what you will find is that in doing that, even though it feels unnatural and foreign... That's who you are as the new man. And stop listening to the voice wherever it comes from that says, that's not even the real you. The New Testament screams, that is the real you. And isn't that freeing? You might come from a family that's very reserved. And, you know, we, we were kind of quiet people and we weren't real huggy and we weren't real kissy. I mean, like maybe kind of a side hug at Christmas or something. And, but we're not just in each other's faces. And I've got all these extroverted, huggy people around me. I, I just, I can't be that way. All right, on the one hand, you don't have to take on some fake persona. But let's say someone in the church experiences a tragedy or they experience a death and there's something inside of you that says... They need love. They need compassion. That little phrase in Colossians 3 in Greek is to have bowels of compassion, to feel it, and the heart goes out. But then you may go into this internal struggle of, but, but I'm not the kind of person that just busts up over there and actually hugs someone who's hurting and weeps with those who weep. And Colossians 3 is saying, yes, you are. It may be an out-of-body experience the first five times you do it. And then you're going to look up, Lord willing, ten years from now, and it's going to be you. It was always the real you, if you're in Christ. But the behaviors are going to start matching. 
And we could say it about those who struggle uh, not to forgive. We could say it with those who, who grew up in families that were the opposite extreme. It was loud and everybody's assertive and the dinner table is pandemonium and we just love each other hard and we fight hard and so we don't do the gentleness thing. Well, to be conformed to the image of Christ, you have to try to do the gentleness thing. He was God the Son and He was gentle in heart. He didn't obliterate everyone He could obliterate. Wade in, the water is fine. Will it feel unnatural on front end? Yes. Is it the real you and are you being inauthentic? If you're in Christ, no, no, no. Where do you get this? And I, I just literally broad brush, 15 and 16. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another. The way that sounds in English is kind of like we're sitting in the living room and a knock comes at the door and we say, who is it? It's the peace of Christ. Can I come in? Yes. The door's open. You may come in, peace of Christ. In other words, it sounds passive. Or the word of Christ dwelling in you richly. You know, yes, you may come in and dwell in me richly. The Greek verbs are active. And do you know what this means? This means everything from... We have got to commit ourselves not to doing this catch-as-catch-can. We need to go ahead and be grown up and set our faces like flint, like men and women, and say that whether it's football season or whether it's a crazy time for my children's schedule or whatever, we commit to this. Why? So we can have a full room and Brian can feel good? No, because this is where we hear the Word of God together. And this is where we speak Scripture to each other. And this is where we sing together. And this is where we're brought back to sanity. And if individually and privately we're waiting for this magical time where more knowledge of the Word of God is just going to fall into my lap, we've got to set our faces like flint and say, I'm going to be done with having a plan for this and a plan for that, and then I kind of read the Bible on the fly. And that's not legalism. That is actively taking responsibility for your own joy and for real change. Change from our power? No, change from the power of God to be who we're supposed to be, to be who we are. Let me end with this. Um, as I worked on this text, I, I thought so much about this wonderful young woman who was converted when I was a, a campus minister, I, it was really just one of those stark times where I watched someone become a Christian. And she, she just has grown to be a wonderful woman. And I asked her, I, 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 didn't, I didn't preempt anything. I said, here's what I'm preaching on. I've thought about you. Will you write what it was like for you when you first became a Christian and you started changing? You were changed and you were changing. Here's, she wrote this back yesterday, emailed. I, she said, the first time you and I met, I was hoping to have some questions answered and you were hoping that Jesus would capture my soul. On that day, I was changed forever. As I headed back to the sorority house that fall day, I felt more scared and more free than at any other time in my life. 
scared because I had to get used to clothes that were new to me, and free because these new clothes felt so refreshing. Quite frankly, as the weeks and months passed, I was not a fan of the whole Christianity thing. I remember you saying to a group of us one night, this Christianity stuff is for the birds. I used to be able to do whatever I wanted without any deep feelings attached, and now my heart breaks over sin. This is not fun or easy. And then she says, sanctification is not always fun. It is always hopeful. Last few sentences. The oddest things remind me of sanctification. Changing the diaper on our daughter. The muddy clothes on our little boy before his bath. Even the deep pain of seeing my darling sins rear their ugly head. It is filth and freedom knitted together. Now, that has the scent of real life and of real change. If you do not know that you are in Christ and have been forgiven, go to Him to be cleansed, but go with this additional good news that He can not only cleanse you, He can change you from the inside out. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, help us, we pray, not to believe this voice in our head that says, you cannot make those changes. You've never been that way before. Whether it comes from our own sinful hearts or comes from the evil one, we praise you, Lord Jesus, that as you died, you allowed the old man to die with you. We praise you that when you came out of that tomb raised to life, that the new church, the new Israel, the new man was raised with you. We don't understand it, but we thank you for it. Bring changes in our lives. Oh Lord, if if this passage means that we have letters to write, or apologies to make, or disciplines to cultivate, or scripture to study, or to open ourselves up to rebuke. Have mercy upon us and change us to look like your son. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.